Welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by lead pastor, Chad Peralt. For other podcasts and resources, visit www.vineyardportland.org. not good. Anyway, um, I'm sure they'll figure it out. Uh, I've got a question to ask you guys. Has anyone ever met anyone famous? Who's met anyone famous? All right, Luke. You met Ray Bork? For real? That was pretty sweet, I bet. How'd you, where'd you meet him? Nice, nice. Anybody else met anyone famous? Wow, a a lot of people. Okay, I'm going to have to call on somebody here. Okay, Kathy. Yeah. You met Barbara Bush? No way. That is cool. That is cool. All right, I'll take two more. Donna. Julius Irving? You met Julius Irving? (laughs) What? Were you a fan of Julius Irving? Eh, Okay, all right, yeah. This, has anyone ever met, like, their hero or idol or, I shouldn't say idol, I just said idol in church. <laughs> oh, we'll be talking about it in a second, so it's actually a good segue. Oh, Patty. Oh, Dr. James Dobson, you met him. That is cool. And he's someone you really obviously look up to highly. There you go. Focus on the family. Focus on the family. Cool. All right, one more. Jimmy, yeah. Oh, I think I knew that. I think I knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Eddie Munster, the surfer. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Um, cool. So I have met someone famous as well, and actually it was someone that I really look up to, and uh, a famous baseball player. Uh, his name was Roger Clemens. You guys know Roger Clemens? Yeah, Roger the Rocket. Roger the Rocket. Um, I got to meet him when I was probably like 11 or 12 years old. And it was actually right here in Portland because he was here doing a, an autograph signing. And uh, I got to bring three cards, baseball cards, and a baseball uh, to him. And he signed it, and I still have it today. Now, since then, he's sort of... <laughs> fallen from grace a little, so I was really hoping that I would have a really valuable piece of uh, something, a baseball or a card that was very valuable, but um, unfortunately, uh, that's not the case, so because he had to, like, go and cheat, so, but anyway, that was, that's mine. I, I met Roger Clemens. Man, I was just so, it was right over here in Portland. It was actually right by where the old egg and I is. Um, they did, uh, I don't know what it was, but I went with my dad, and I remember uh, being able to meet him. I thought to myself, oh, my gosh. Like, I'm seriously standing right in front of Roger Clemens, and he's signing my baseball right now. Like, whoa. It was so cool. It was so cool. And so, well, the reason why I kind of shared that, or the reason why I asked you guys is because, oh, yes, right on cue. Woo! Um, 
the title of my message this morning is His Name's Fame. His Name's Fame. And this is what we're going to look at both today uh, and not next week, but in, in the following weeks, we're going to look at um, the importance of making his name famous uh, and why it is uh, that we are called to make his name famous and, and what kind of implication that has on our lives. How is it that we can go about in our lives making his name famous, making his name known? That is our goal. That is the end. That is our life, to make his name famous, to make him known. And so this morning, we're going to start on this journey of uh, discovering how to do that. And you'll be surprised that it's much simpler than you might think. Uh, I think sometimes in the broader Christian culture, we tend to complicate things and make things harder than they are. And uh, my goal with this series, starting this week and then picking up in a couple weeks, is to bring a simplicity to our lives with the one aim of making his name famous. So we're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 12. And you guys have already heard the scripture because I just gave it to you in accord with the word that we, or the song we just sang. I didn't even realize that we were singing that song today. I mean, I did, but I didn't realize that I was, we were going to sing it and that we were going to, uh, it was going to connect so, um, so accurately to what we're going to be talking about this morning. So 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20 and 22. Let me set it up for you before we get into it. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, we begin to see uh, the power and the leadership of Samuel in transition, we begin to see Samuel transitioning from a judge to a prophet. And in his place, he uh, appoints a king named Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel is giving his farewell speech as the judge. Well, I would say he's not just the only judge. I mean, part of the reason why they find themselves in this place is because Samuel's sons are very corrupt. And so the people cry out, and they want a king. They don't want judges anymore. They don't want to be ruled by judges. They want a human king to be like the other nations. So Samuel says, okay, that's what you want. That's what you get. And so Samuel, after a couple of battles, Saul proves himself to be a, a worthy king, and Samuel goes about, and he uh, appoints Saul, and in his farewell address, um, he lays out a stinging rebuke of his people. Basically, what he says to them is, you're getting this king because you don't trust God to be your king. You don't trust God to be leading you, and you need a human leader like every other nation that is around you. You are not set apart if you want a king. You are not consecrated if you want a king. How are you any different than any other nation around you if you just want what they have? So he levels the stinging rebuke to his people. 
in, in, in Samuel cha- 1 Samuel chapter 12. And, and the people hear this rebuke and they're brought to this place of fear. This awareness of fear that they have in, in some way transgressed their relationship with God. That they were, they were, they were, uh, they were uh, participating in infidelity to, to Yahweh. That they were not trusting him. That they were cheating on God by wanting a human king and not relying on him as king. So they're brought to this place of fear and repentance. But in the midst of their repentance, in the midst of their awareness of what they had done to God, how they had transgressed their agreement with God, their covenant with God, in the midst of that comes the good news. Sound familiar? It's kind of the gospel foreshadowed in the life of Samuel. So in the midst of this this rebuke where Israel is brought low, and they realize what they had done before God. The good news comes. And Samuel says this. What is the good news? That God will not cast away his people for his name's fame. God will not cast away his people for his name's fame. He said, fear not, even though all of these things you've done. Fear not. Because God will not cast away his people for his name's fame. See, God is all about making his name famous. He wants his name known in the earth. And he has decided that he will primarily do that through me and you. So let's read it. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. We'll start there. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Let me just pray for a moment. As we get into this, um, I really feel like as we get into the word of God, as we encounter the presence of God through his word, that there is such power in it to transform. And so I I just want to, I want to do this quickly. I want to center us in a place where we are focused on the truth of his word, that the seed of his word would, would bear much fruit in our lives, that the soil that this seed lands on this morning would be fertile that you guys would take this in, that I would take this in, and we would be transformed by it, that we would grow in it, that would, we would be mature, that we would seek God all the more through the, the truth of his word, and that the seed of this word would be planted in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds, and that it would be on fertile ground, ready to bring life. So Father, I ask for that in Jesus' name, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth, God, that the, the, the truth that you breathed out through your spirit, Lord God, that as we breathe in your word, God, it would bring life to our bones and to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20 says this. Samuel says, these are all the things you've done. <laughs> and you have transgressed him, and you have, been, you have not trusted God to be your king. Yet, yet. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve him with your whole heart. Do not turn aside, even though you have done this. Do not turn aside, but serve him with your whole heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot deliver, for they are empty. 
then he goes on to say, and here it is. For the Lord will not cast away his people for his name's sake. Because the Lord finds pleasure in drawing a people for himself. So we're going to look at this in two sections this morning. We're going to look at the first part, which is the warning. And we're going to look at the second part, which is the promise. So we got to get through the first part first to get to the good part. But we're going to get to the promise. And then we're going to get to how it is that we respond to this promise with our lives. So here we go. The warning of turning. This is the first part. 1 Samuel, this, that was wrong. I made that up wrong. It's 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20 and 21. So what is the warning? The warning is this. Do not turn aside from following the Lord. Samuel says this twice in the same verse. Do not turn aside. Then he makes a statement. Then he says, do not turn aside again. Now in this first statement, he says, do not turn aside, but follow the Lord with all of your heart. What does this mean? It means that God's people were to follow him, were to keep their eyes fixed on the Lord, that they were to remain in him, that he would be at the very center of their lives, and that their worship of him would remain their focus. He said, you are in a critical time right now. You are in a time of temptation. You are in a time of being brought low. But fear not. God is, is not going to forsake you. In fact, follow him. Follow him and trust him and serve him. And what is the evidence of our unswerving devotion to Yahweh, to the Lord? What is it that we can look at to say, okay, I am devoted to him. How could they remain confident that they were continuing to follow him? The evidence was that they were going to serve him. He says to them, do not turn aside, but serve the Lord with what? All of your heart. What does that mean? That, that idea of heart is this Hebrew word, labab. And that Hebrew word means at the very most interior of your being. Quite literally, it's, it's the interior organ, the heart. But figuratively or more broadly, it means with your feelings, with your intellect, with your will, with your desire. At the center of everything, Samuel is saying, follow him and serve him with everything. That there's nothing about who you are in your body and your soul that should be exempt from serving Yahweh. Serve him with everything. With all of your heart. How are they exp to express their service to God? Samuel says, do not turn aside, but serve him with all your heart. How are they to do that? Simply, it was this. Their service to God was found in their obedience to his commands. That's how they are to serve God, by their obedience to his command. From the very core of their being, in their most inward parts, with all feeling and intellect from every part of their center, 
They were to live a life honoring to God in their service to him by obeying his commands. That's what Samuel was saying to them. With everything in you, serve him. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, this is what it says about serving him in relationship to his commands. It says, and if you will indeed obey my commandments, then I command you today to love the Lord your God and to what? Serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And look what happens. And he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. What is Moses saying here? He says, when you serve God with everything, he will be sufficient in all things. When you serve him with everything, when you serve him with your whole heart, when you serve him with everything in you, he will be faithful to provide and be sufficient enough for you that you don't have to turn aside to empty things, but you turn to him and keep him at the center. Psalm 16, this is one of my favorite psalms. I, I absolutely love this psalm. I've been in this psalm for about, I don't know, a couple months. Psalm 16, verse 7. If you turn there with me, I just love this part of this psalm. It says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart is instructed by him. So I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And in the night also my heart instructs me. What is the psalmist saying? That as I focus on God, as I focus on him, as I live a life honoring to him, the very residue of his presence rests in my heart and instructs me. That as I seek the counsel of God, the very residue of that counsel rests and remains in my heart. And then my own heart even instructs me because of God's counsel. So there's this wonderful relationship that as we seek him, as we seek his counsel, that the residue of his counsel is, is on our hearts so that our own heart can even instruct us because of our desire to, to know him and to desire his counsel. And then it goes on to say, this is the best part. I have set the Lord always before me. He's right here. He's right here. I'm not turning this way. I'm not turning that way. He's here. He's in front of me. Like God is in front of me always. I have set the Lord always before me, right in front of me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I have set the Lord before me, and he is at my right hand. Why is he at the right hand? Because it is a place of honor. When we say that God is at our right hand, it is a place of honor. It means we honor him. We live for him. So I set him before me, and he's right here because I honor him. I live for him. But he's at the very center of my gaze. He is at the very forefront of my life. Therefore, my heart is glad. So if we do this, therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My whole being, my heart, everything in me. My emotions, my will, my intellect, every part of me, what rejoices when who's before me? Him. He is at the center. 
He is at the forefront. I am not turning aside, as Samuel says. Do not turn aside from following him, but serve him with all your heart. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that place of darkness, that place of death, that place where death is our shepherd. That's Sheol. Because I put him before me, you will not abandon me to a place of darkness where you are not, not my shepherd. And then he goes on to say, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. That his pleasure is honoring to him. And not only that, his pleasure should be honoring to us, that we should honor God's pleasure in our lives, that whatever we do, whatever we say, and how we conduct our lives, that it should bring him pleasure. So Samuel warns them. And again, he says to them in the second verse, do not turn aside. Do not turn aside from the Lord. If they fail to do this and to continue to follow him, to keep his commands, Samuel says that if they turn aside, they will turn to empty things. Empty things that do not profit or do not deliver. Empty things that don't bring life, that don't bring fulfillment, that don't bring fruitfulness. He says, if you turn from him and you turn aside, you will turn to things that do not bring life. At this point right now, we should be looking at our lives and saying to ourselves, what is it I am turning to that brings me no life, that I find satisfaction in? What is it that I am turning to that has caused me not to follow him? What is it that I have turned aside to that has brought me nothing but grief, that has brought me nothing but death, that brings me no life, that doesn't fulfill me in any way. Samuel says, if you turn aside, you will turn to empty things that cannot deliver, cannot deliver you, cannot save you, cannot fulfill you, cannot bring you joy, cannot... Uh, bring you uh, complete and utter contentment in Yahweh. You will seek to uh, have life in his presence if you turn. In turning aside, they would be exchanging the infinite worth of Yahweh for the bankruptcy of mere idols. And those idols are powerless to bring life. So the question is, if we're going to follow him and not turn aside, and he stays in the forefront, that means everything else is going to be pushed to the side. 
that anything else we look to for comfort, first and foremost, anything we look to for fulfillment outside of him will never be enough. He is sufficient. So that is the warning. Do not turn aside, but serve him with everything. And not only that, serve him with everything you have. Not only that, don't turn aside, because if you do, you will turn to empty things that will never satisfy, never bring fulfillment, never deliver you. And then he goes on to say, the promise. And here is the promise. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, in the first part of that. Samuel emphatically discourages God's people to turn from him. Why? Because the Lord has promised he would never forsake his people. The Lord has promised that he would never forsake his people. The Lord has promised that he would never cast you away. Samuel is saying, in your time, Israel, of greatest discouragement, greatest trouble, greatest weakness, greatest doubt, Samuel says to them, do not turn away, but to continue to follow him with your whole heart. Do not turn from him, but follow him, because he has promised you that he will not cast you away. See, the only way this thing doesn't work, guys, is if we cast him away. That's the only way this thing doesn't work. Because we know from his word that he will never cast us away. So the only way this doesn't work between us and him is if we decide to cast him away. To put him off. To turn aside. It is not possible for God to turn aside from us. It is only possible for us to turn from him. And you may say to yourself, well, wait a minute, Chad. What about the exile? What about Ezra? What about the time when they were deported to Babylon? Did he not cast them away? No, he didn't. He didn't. Part of the old covenant with God and his people, it was a land lease agreement. If you obey my commands, you stay in the land. If you don't obey my commands, guess what? You broke the agreement. But it does not mean that God forsake them or cast them away. Simply, it was a breaking of the covenant. But it in no way caused God to cast his people away. The only way this doesn't work is if you say to him, I'm done. That's it. That's the only way. That's the promise he gives us. God is, and I'll tell you why this is. God has decided that he will never cast away his people, and he does it for one purpose, for his name's sake. Now, this is a little bit offensive for many of us in the Christian culture. Because we want to think that God er does everything for us. But unfortunately, that's not what the truth says. That's not what the text says. But we want God to do everything because 
of us because we deserve in some way what he gives. But God does not cast us away because of anything in us. He does it for one purpose, his name's sake. Why? God is unswervingly committed to his name. He's unswervingly committed to his name. And his unwavering commitment to his name is the purpose and the reason that he does not cast us away. It is his commitment, not to just his name, but the fame of his name. That he does not cast us away for one purpose, for the fame of his name. That we are to make his name known in the earth. And him not casting us away gives us that opportunity. God does it for his name. Verse 21 says that God will not forsake us for his great name. God is for us. Why? Because he is first for himself. God is God-centered, not you-centered. We need to start treating him that way. He does it for himself in his Name. More importantly, nothing brings him greater pleasure than the fame of his name expressed in our devotion to him. God finds great pleasure when we devote our lives to him for the sake of his name being known in the earth. God's unwavering commitment and love for his people is not predicated on the value of our worth. It is predicated solely on the value of his name. And we are the beneficiaries of that commitment to his name. In other words, the attributes of God, namely his love, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness, are extended towards us as a result of his pleasure in expressing his unwavering fidelity to his nature. Do you guys see that? That the reason why he extends all of those attributes to us, his love, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness, the reason why he extends all those things is because he is completely committed to his nature, that he cannot deny himself, that he cannot go back on who he is. So he, 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 his attributes are expressed and are offered to us. Why? Because he is completely committed to himself. And he cannot deny himself and he cannot resist himself, but he finds great pleasure in acting on his own will and expressing his attributes. Let me, let me ask you a question. Does God need to show himself love? No. Does he need to show himself mercy? No. Does he need to show himself righteousness? No. No. I mean, he's perfect. Why does he need to show himself? Why does God's attributes need to be shown to himself? They don't. So why, why does God have these attributes? Why do they exist? For our benefit. God in himself, in his perfect nature, in his harmony, in his intrinsic Trinitarian relationship, doesn't need to show any of this to himself because he's perfect. 
but yet he shows it to us because we're not. So it is by our sinful state that God gets to express these attributes of mercy and righteousness and goodness and love and salvation. And he does it because he is unswervingly committed to his name. And so should we in this land, in this world, in our lives. It is this unwavering fidelity first to him and secondly to us that causes the fame of his name. 1 Samuel chapter 12, 22. Not only does God not cast us away because he's so committed to his name, not only that, but he finds pleasure in not only, not only casting us out, but drawing us in. That he draws us in because he finds great pleasure in it. Look at, look at Samuel. Look at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 12, verses uh, 21 or 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not cast them away for his great sake, for his great name's sake. But because it has pleased God to make you a people for himself. So he finds pleasure in drawing a people to himself. That should make us really joyful this morning. Like, are you kidding me? Like, not only does he not cast me away, but he actually finds great pleasure in me being his. Wow. You, let me be careful the way I say this. <laughs> you, in a certain sense, cause God to find pleasure in himself when you respond to him as he draws you to him. Wow. The pleasure of God is most richly experienced when a people are drawn near to him and cling to him like a garment. That they would cling to him so closely that there would be no separation between us and him. Why? Because as his people draw near to him, his name will be made famous. That's the point. He finds pleasure in the fame of his name. And by drawing a people to him, that is how that's accomplished. So God not only does not cast us away, but finds great pleasure in drawing us close, like a garment. So close. Check this out. Jeremiah 13, verse 11. You guys want to go there with me? Jeremiah 13, verse 11. Listen to, listen to this language. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, I know this is really archaic language, the loincloth, Clings as my jeans cling to me, <laughs> as my jean jacket cloaks me and makes me sweat because it's hot in here. <laughs> as the loincloth clings to me, oh man, I just lost my place. As the as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, sorry. So I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me. 
Why? Why? That they might be for me a people. A people of a name. A people of a praise. A people of a glory. But then it ends, they would not listen. (laughs) But that is God's desire. God says, I want to draw my people to me as a loincloth, as my jeans cling to my waist. I want to make the whole house of Israel cling to me like a garment. Why? For my fame. For my fame. For my glory. For my praise. For my name. That's what he wants. And we get the desire, the ability, and we have in us through the Spirit a desire to do that. But here's the problem. How can a holy God who desires to bring his people near draw us to himself? How is it a holy God can draw an unholy people to himself? How is it that he can do this? Because we are not God. He is God in all of his splendor and majesty, and we are not. But how can God be radically committed to his holiness, right, and yet radically committed to his people? How can these two things happen at the same time? How can he be radically committed to his nature, which is perfect, yet radically committed to us who are sinful? How does that happen? How can he maintain the infinite worth of his reputation, mainly his name, and express his infinite love for his people? How does that happen? Christ. When we receive the gift of salvation through faith, by grace, we now cling to Christ. We cling to him as we share in his death. But here's the cool part. Instead of us being the garment of God as Israel was to Yahweh, he now becomes ours. Think about this. We're no longer God's garment, but he is ours do you believe me? Do you? How do we know that? How do we know that he is our garment? How do we know that? Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Let's let the word prove itself this morning. Galatians 3 chapter 20, uh, Galatians 3 verse 26. (laughs) For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have what? Put on Christ. Put him on. You have put on Christ. When you are baptized into Christ, you've put him on. If you are in Christ, you have put him on. He wants you to put him on. No longer are you just drawn to him as a loincloth. No, now you are drawn to him and you are told to put on Christ. Put him on as a garment. That's what we do. Paul says this in different terms in Colossians chapter 3. This is what he says in Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, similar language to Galatians, seek the things that are above. So if then we have been raised with Christ, if we have died in Christ and we are in him, if we have died a death, 
to sin like Christ has by our faith in Christ. If we have died with him, we are in him. And if we are raised with Christ, if we, are, if we die with him, we are raised with him. Then what it is do we do? We seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Why? Because you've been raised, not on things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Why is our life hidden in Christ with God? What are we hidden from? Judgment. That's where we're hidden from. When we are in Christ, we are hidden in him. He is completely, we are totally in, in Christ, that he is our protector from judgment because he has come and paid the penalty. So when we are in Christ, that's what it means. We are in him and we are raised with him. And when we are raised with him, we get to set our minds on the things of him. So we get to set our minds on the things of Christ because we're raised with him because we've died with him. And so if we get to set our minds on the things of Christ, it's because he's asked us to put him on. Put him on as the garment. If we do indeed trust Christ, if we've put our faith in him, then we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we will put him on. And if we have put on Christ, we will set our minds on the things of Christ. And what are the things of Christ? Paul goes on to say in Colossians 3, a little further down, he says then, listen to this language, put on then. <clears throat> are you raised with Christ? Put on then. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all, put on love, which binds everything and holds everything in perfect harmony. So now our whole lives now become devoted to these things. That if we put on Christ, that is what we put on. And our whole lives are now devoted to these things as we desire to put him on. And why do we desire to put him on? It is to make his name famous. It is for the fame of his name. This desire is our devotion to the simplicity of honoring serving, and living for Christ. In Titus 3, verse 4, it says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appears, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So how does God, why does God show his attribute of mercy? To save us. Why does he do that? Because he's holy and unswervingly committed to his name. He saves us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ 
our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And that's the point. That if we are in Christ, and these are the things we put on, how are they expressed in our lives? Titus says they are expressed that our reaction to the mercy of God in our lives is to live a life filled with good works. Not that they save, not that they make us righteous, but they are a response to what we have already been given. And that they become our desire to serve Christ through good works. Let us not be ashamed of a simple life, but let us rejoice in a life cleansed by regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, being made righteous through trusting in Christ, who was provided for us by his grace for our salvation, so that our joy can be found in him through participating in every good work he has prepared for us to walk in. It's simple. So in the coming weeks, we're going to we're going to discover and we're going to talk about the life of simplicity. The life of good works that we've been called into. That's what we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. I kind of want to lift the veil that sometimes can cause disillusionment regarding what our purpose is. We'll talk about this more later. But sometimes I think the, the broader Christian culture puts a heavy yoke on us to figure out our purpose. That in some way there's this nebulous purpose out there and we have to somehow figure out what it is. And, and, it, and it's like this, this, this cat and mouse game with God. Like, oh, you got to find your purpose and you got to figure out your identity and your identity's got to line up with your purpose and that's all got to line up with God's open door and God's timing and it just becomes this muddled sort of way of, of pursuing God. It's like, it becomes a heavy yoke on people because then they question themselves thinking, am I, am I walking in my purpose? Uh, am I, am I, have I discovered my identity? You know, oh, have I missed God's timing? You know, did I miss the open door? A and it's, there's just this push, I think, in the broader church culture that, that we're destined for these great things, you know? And, and sometimes that leaves us feeling like our lives are not good enough in where they are. That, that, that somehow, because we're not experiencing these, these hyper-spiritual experiences and that we're not out there changing the world, that in some way we're not obedient to God in the way that he wants us to, or that we're not surrendering our lives in the way he wants us to. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's a total lie. So I want to dispel over the next weeks this, this notion that, that in some way um, 
that we're not fulfilling our purpose in our day-to-day life as we, as we are ministers of good works to those in our lives. I'll just finish with this. You know, for me personally, I never considered my purpose to, to pastor this church. I just didn't. Like, Shanna and I never really had these long discussions about doing this. <laughs> we just didn't. We, we, we were never, we were, <laughs> we were never in a place with God where we were like, God, we know this is for us, and you got to open the door. <laughs> we just weren't. I mean, what we did is we just said yes to everything he put before us. That was it. We just said yes. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. Like, I know this may sound weird, but I don't consider my purpose in life to be a pastor or to pastor or lead this church. I know that sounds weird, but hang with me for a second. Nor do I find my identity in this position. This is something that God has called us to for a specific period of time. We do not know how long that is. But if in five years we are no longer pastoring this church, and and let me just say that our desire is is that in five years we're pastoring the church. (laughs) You know, okay, so I'm not sitting here going, hey, we're we're like, you know, we, we got some master plan here, you know. But let me just say something um, that I hope you can draw some application from. If in five years we're not in this position, it doesn't change my purpose. And it doesn't change my identity. I am a son of God. I am an adopted son of God by faith in Christ. And I have been purposed and created to participate in good works that God has prepared beforehand for me to walk in. Now, it just so happens that the good work is bringing you the good news. The good work is for Shanna to be leading together with me, this church, that we are leading together, pastoring this place together, pastoring you guys together. And, And she is singing and worshiping and leading you into worship. That's her good work. But if that is not the case in five years, it doesn't change our identity. It doesn't change our purpose. That wherever God has placed us, he has commissioned us to participate in the good works he has planned beforehand for us to walk in. Okay? And that's what I want to focus on over the next many weeks. That you can find a sense of of purpose where you are by participating in the good works that are laid out before you, wherever you are. And that there's no grand master. I mean, there is. I don't want to, I don't want to downplay God's sovereign omnipotence and power, right? But at the same time, we can't be stuck in a life where we're just feeling like we're missing it. When God is saying, you serve me right where you are. 
Let me just say, we're just not all called to be world changers. We're just not. And that's okay. But I feel like that's just the narrative. It's like, you just got to go out and you just got to be, you got to make the biggest impact on the biggest stage you can. And that is, I'm sorry, but I look at the scriptures and that is just not the life we're called to. Think about how many people just in the history of this nation have had major impacts on the life of our nation. There's been many. But there's been many that you've never heard of. There have been many that have come and gone and have served God and have done what they've done and they've been obedient to his call and they've served him by being called into a life of good works that God has planned before them so that they could walk in. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't desire to be a missionary or whatever. What I'm saying is, is we cannot get, get caught in the trap that I think is so pervasive in the Christian culture that if we're not doing X, Y, and Z, we're somehow not surrendered, not obedient, and we're not fulfilling the call that God has on our lives. So that's kind of the purpose for this series going forward. Making his name famous. Let's take a moment. Let's take a moment. Let's take a moment. Let's take a moment. Let's take a moment.